We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the, the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So begins the book of Ecclesiastes. Five times in that first verse you heard the word vanity. It will show up 38 times in the 12 chapters that is, this, that is Ecclesiastes. Vanity, this is not your teenage daughter spending way too much time with her makeup in front of the mirror. That's our common understanding, right? Excessive pride in our appearance. For Solomon, vanity, the word he uses, we translate as vanity, has a sense of meaninglessness or insubstantiality. The same word elsewhere gets translated as breath or vapor, something that just floats away. Our text opens with another example of vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Money and wealth bring their own problems. What is, how does Solomon put it? When riches increase, they who eat it increase. Solomon knew about this problem firsthand. He built houses, which needed landscaping, and landscaping required irrigation, and both required slaves. Huge herds of cattle were needed to feed the slaves, and musicians and concubines were needed to help Solomon escape from the whole mess. Go back and read Ecclesiastes 2 and find, <laughs> get the whole story. We don't often read Ecclesiastes. It's here in proper, or series B, proper 24, and then we read snippets from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and series C, proper 13. So really it's kind of helpful to step back and, and kind of get sense of the order of the book, try to find Solomon's train of thought, if you will. When Solomon looked at this fallen world, what he saw was both a tragedy and a puzzle. Through his own experiments, remember the landscaping and the slaves, his observations and insights, wrongly construed as wisdom, he sought to make sense out of the world. In particular, he wanted to come up with some kind of overall game plan to explain, to account for good and bad. Well, Solomon failed miserably. If anything, the world was far worse than he ever imagined. Human beings, he found, cannot even figure out life's problems, much less solve those problems. For such a gargantuan task, human mind power and human effort are a waste. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Before leaving those opening verses, there's one other word that we should take note of. It's prominent in our reading. It shows up twice there, and that's the word toil. It'll show up 35 times in the book. Amal is the Hebrew word. It can mean simply work or labor, but for Solomon, the word has an overtone of frustration. It suggests toilsome labor or unending human striving that gets us back to that very first word of vanity. For him, labor and industry are without purpose because they're without meaning. They can't make life or even the quality of life secure. When I picture amal or toil, the image that comes to mind to me is sand the boat. 
It's actually a phrase that my kids co-opted from Karate Kid. Sand the boat. Here's a sheet or a couple sheets of 180 grit sandpaper and a bucket of water. Go wet sand the top sides of that 22 square meter. Sweetwater Boats did the annual maintenance for about a half a dozen of these boats. They were from 36 to 42 feet, which means you got 72 to 84 running feet of top sides, anywhere from three to five inches in height. Sand the boat. For one guy, that meant over a half a day with soggy shirt sleeves, pruny fingers, mind-numbing work. There are, of course, a great variety of toil, not necessarily physical labor. Spreadsheets and accounting ledgers can be just as relentless. Even the arts have their own version of activities that grind our bodies down, make our minds numb, and our souls empty. Amal, toil. Solomon captures it in our reading. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Twice in our reading, Solomon uses the image of an empty hand. A father who has nothing in his hand to give his son. And then echoing the words of Job, Naked he entered the world, and naked we depart, and he shall not take anything for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's empty. Toiling for the wind, of course, is a manifestation of the curse God placed on creation as punishment for Adam's sin. Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thistles and thorns it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. There's no certainty or control regarding the end or the use of wealth. Bullhagen observes that people do not control goods. Their goods control them. Acquiring a second car does what? It puts you at the beck and call of two maintenance-hungry vehicles. A young couple moves into a larger house, one that is forever empty because its occupants are otherwise occupied with the business of paying for it. Or consider the feeling of relief that comes from divesting oneself of household stuff no longer used. The second happiest day in a boat owner's life is the day you sell it. All of this is toiling for the wind. I have actually seen a picture of the proverbial hearse pulling a U-Haul, but I am pretty sure it was staged. Solomon's answer to all of this is, it's your lot. It's your portion. Actually, it is a gift of God. And not just the toil, but the ability to enjoy it. The ability to be glad in it. With verse 18 of our text, Solomon makes a pivotal shift. Listen again to this part of the text. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to see enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Luther wrote, This is the conclusion of the entire book, or argument, which was also stated earlier in chapters 2 and 3. This statement is the interpreter of the entire piece. There are parallels here, of course, to wisdom literature and other ancient Near Eastern countries, particularly Egypt, but the real and godly wisdom is this. The true wisdom of God. Wisdom is the fear of God. 
Once a person is overwhelmed with life's difficulties and by his own total depravity and uncertainty, once he's dashed to the ground by his own helplessness and hopelessness, then and only then can he turn. Turn and look to the one last alternative, triune God, maker of heaven and earth. To the God who would also send his son to redeem sinful humanity and send his spirit to sanctify and lead his redeemed people. True wisdom, the fear of God, means trusting that God is both omniscient and also merciful. That God will take care of, in his own way, in his own time, absolutely everything. Life's problems, life's disappointments, life's sadnesses, life's apparent meaninglessness, life's sin, and yes, life's outcome. God knows, God cares, and God does it all. The challenge that this text presents to us is to put first things first. It calls into question the world's attitude of more is better. Better cars and clothes, nicer homes and holidays, fewer colds and cavities, greater strength and stamina. No, all of this, great or small, new or old, sickness or health, weal or woe, all of this is from God. It's my lot, it's my portion. It's the first commandment issue to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. One contemporary author put it this way, in Ecclesiastes, the fear of God that is urged upon the reader is fully realized in both law and gospel. It is the fear of God's wrath at sin, plus faith in his gracious mercy promised for the sake of Jesus Christ. Close quote. Our text calls us to remember that God is God, that man is man, and there is a whole universe of difference between the two of them. The only possible connection is pure condescension on God's part. And he has done it in the incarnation, ministry, atoning death, bodily resurrection, and exaltation of his son, Jesus Christ. As we sing in that great hymn, Rock of Ages, you all remember, this is the third verse. Join me. Nothing in my hand I bring, sin, nothing in my hand, in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross, naked, come. I'm singing the wrong tune. You want to look it up, it's 761. <laughs> Nothing in my hand, I, that's what we mean. Simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Fall I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Thank you. The greater answer, the greater revelation is Jesus Christ. The self-revelation of a God who loves us with an incomprehensible love. In the end, financially speaking, both the rich and the poor break even. The only place where people can hang their lasting hopes 
is with God himself who justifies all who trust in him. He sent his son who gave his life for you. You are redeemed. You are baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From a Lutheran perspective, the challenge of Ecclesiastes comes down to this. Do we believe sola gratia or not? Is it? Is life? Is salvation? Is everything a gift or not? If it is, then God's self-revelation in Jesus has turned your toil into triumph. Toil may be a cross today. Sin and sickness abound in our world. Sorrow and sadness, persecutions and rejection. In these we grow as we walk in our Savior's train, carrying the cross laid on each of us. When we persevere in the faith with Paul, we can declare, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But toil can also be a joy. Verse 19 from our text. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. Paul Frere phrases that this way. Here are some things you can do. Rejoice. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the gifts I give you from the big eternal gifts down to the smallest gifts of daily bread. Have fun in the simple tasks I assign you. You'll get so busy doing useful things that you won't have time to worry. On the other hand, trusting me doesn't take any time at all. And one closing thought. The gifts of God are to be shared. That's the root problem here, isn't it? Letting second or third or even fourth things be first instead of God. Well, I have a suggestion. Actually, a challenge for you. Demote something. Take something that has monopolized your hearts, your thoughts, your time. Demote it. Give it away. Be free from that specific piece of vanity. All of us need to learn again that everything we have, everything we call our own, they're all God's gifts. And it is a grievous evil when gifts are kept by their owner to his hurt, as Solomon reminds us. So give it away. Your neighbor has need of it. Ponder what it means to be a creature whose needs are fully and completely met by a loving father. Look our culture in the eye and tell it no. Long for what God is doing in Christ for you, for this community, for the world. Seek first the reign of God and his putting this world rights to rights, and all these things will be added unto you. God's self-revelation in Jesus turns our toil into triumph, that we may be celebrate the Father's care. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.